You're listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Reduce It Trial, Studying Icosapin Ethyl, an in-depth review of USA dataset, is provided by Medtelligence and is supported by an independent educational grant from Ameren. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Deepak, uh, we look forward to hearing about the special results that of the patients randomized in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I did present it in abbreviated fashion today, but I'll actually be showing data here that haven't been shown yet. So uh, for those of you that are still awake and uh, uh, engaged, uh, it, it'll be new data, so hopefully worth the wait. And uh, thank you both again uh, for inviting me to speak here. You know, Dr. Libby's very humble. He didn't mention that today he also won a very prestigious award honoring his many scientific contributions through the years. So congratulations on that, Dr. Libby. All right. So what I'm going to present to you is Reduce It USA. That's the pre-specified subgroup of patients from the overall reduced trial, which was a global trial who were enrolled in the USA. Uh, my disclosures, as before, research funding to Brigham and Women's Hospital from Ameren. And I'll just mention all these analyses were independently validated by BAME Clinical Research Inst Institute in Boston. So the design of Reduce it is the same. It hasn't changed here, except I'm going to focus in that uh, subgroup of patients out of the 8,179 that were from the U.S. Just to recap the global results overall, again, a 25% reduction in the primary endpoint, a 26% reduction in the key secondary endpoint, and a 31% reduction in total events. So that's the overall global reduced trial that I just presented. But now what I'm going to share with you specifically are the patients who are randomized in the U.S. And the impetus to do this, it was a pre-specified analysis, was just to make sure that the results generally looked uh, the same in the U.S. Uh, and not worse than the global results. And as you may be aware, a number of uh, randomized trials through the years have shown, for sometimes reasons that are inexplicable, inexplicable, worse results in the U.S. And then there are questions of, can we generalize this global trial to practice in the U.S.? Was it just that there were a bunch of patients enrolled from regions of the world that are getting suboptimal care, uh, that um, the results of a positive global trial may not apply in the U.S.? So that's why we did this. Uh, and again... A similar sort of uh, consort diagram, we screened 6,900 patients, randomized 45%, again, a very high rate uh, of randomization suggesting good generalizability, uh, such that we ended up with 3,146 patients in the U.S., randomized Tycosa pentethyl or placebo, and as was the case with the overall trial, uh, excellent trial metrics, 99.9% .9 known vital status at the end of the trial in Reduce It USA. Here is the uh, primary result, the five-point MACE. You see events reduced over an average of five years from 32% in placebo to 22.9% with icosapentethyl. That works out to a hazard ratio of 0.69, relative risk reduction of 31%, and absolute risk reduction of 6.5%, and an NNT of only 15, again, statistically significant. 
So if anything, results that look better in the U.S. than in the overall trial. I should point out, though, even when we look at the non-U.S. patients here, there was, in fact, a significant benefit in the primary endpoint. It just seemed numerically higher here than in the overall trial or in the non-USA subgroup, but those patients benefited as well. Uh, CV death MI stroke, our pre-specified key secondary endpoint, so-called hard MACE, reduced from 22% to 16%, again a 31% relative risk reduction, 4.6% absolute risk reduction in an NNT of only 22. And once more for this endpoint as well, even if we look at the non-U.S. patients, there's a significant reduction. So it's, it, it works uh, in the entire population we studied with no significant regional heterogeneity uh, for the primary or key secondary endpoints. We also examined all-cause mortality. You'll recall that I mentioned in the trial overall there was a trend and, you know, that I thought if we'd follow the patients longer it would have been significant. But here we see uh, within the U.S. patients, again, over an average of about five years, all-cause mortality reduced from 13.9% to 11.1%, a hazard ratio of 0.7, relative risk reduction of 30%, absolute risk reduction of 2.6%, number needed a treat of 39 and a significant finding. And um, again, this was a little bit different than the overall trial where there was a trend, uh, though I think it has to do with the fact that just patients in the U.S. were higher risk than were the patients from outside the U.S. They had more risk factors such as obesity. Uh, that's known from other studies as well, that, that tends to be higher in the U.S. than outside the U.S., and also clustering of other risk factors. And they also had lower baseline levels of EPA or icosapentenoic acid. So basically, a higher risk patient, and therefore uh, easier to see a reduction in endpoints such as mortality. However, this uh, 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 difference in mortality, sometimes uh, people think, oh, maybe it's because of the split of secondary and primary prevention, but it wasn't that this was more secondary prevention than the overall trial. In fact, there were more primary prevention patients here in the U.S. than outside the U.S., so it really just had to do with that they were higher risk, having more risk factors than whether they were secondary or primary prevention per se. But let me come back to that point in a bit. Here's the pre-specified hierarchical testing sequence I showed before, but now specifically looking at the USA group and the primary and secondary endpoints I just showed you significantly reduced. But really, all the components of the primary endpoint and various composites we pre-specified now, all the weight down to including total mortality significantly reduced. And we see significant reductions in fatal or non-fatal stroke, 37% uh, reduction there. Hospitalization for unstable angina, 47% reduction. Cardiovascular death, a significant 34% reduction. And urgent or emergent revascularization, a 36% reduction. Fatal or non-fatal MI, a 28% reduction. So all these different endpoints, as was the case before, for the components of MACE, significantly reduced. But if anything, uh, even larger effect sizes in the U.S. These are the subgroups, as I showed before, but now focused specifically on the USA subgroup from a bottom line perspective. Remarkable consistency of benefit, especially now because we're talking about subgroups of a subgroup. It's, it's rare to see such consistency, but I think it just shows how strong the overall results are, including in the large USA subgroup. And just to call some attention to specific things, secondary and primary prevention seem to be a consistent benefit uh, in both these subgroups. 
as well patients uh, on or not on ezetimibe uh, seem to be uh, consistent benefits. Males and females, consistent benefits. I highlight this in particular, and, and again, we're looking at subgroups of subgroups. It would be uh, statistically inappropriate to demand statistical significance. Really, the goal is to look for consistency. But for what it's worth, it, it, it is uh, also statistically significant in, in both males and females. And, and there's been some chatter on Twitter about, oh, you know, the drug doesn't work in women. Um, and, and that would be a real disservice, I think, to the field if we sort of established that uh, mindset as happened with statins early on where, you know, some folks said, oh, they don't work, work in women, and, and that was a real setback, I think, for women's health. Um, hopefully that won't happen here again, and here's just uh, uh, some further evidence how strong the results are in uh, women as well as men. Uh, similarly, in terms of age, this works in younger folks, it works in older folks. Uh, no reason, I think, to withhold therapy because of age. Uh, also, uh, we didn't have a lot of non-white patients in the trial, but reassuringly, again, a consistency of benefit. Uh, if anything, the hazard ratios graphically are looking uh, like there's a more extreme hazard ratio that is uh, greater benefit. That's not a statistically significant difference. Statistically speaking, one would have to say similar benefit in whites or and non-whites, but still reassuring that it's heading, uh, if anything, uh, even more leftward in non-whites than whites. As well, uh, the American Diabetes Association, I think, uh, really ahead of the curve, came out early after the trial, endorsing the use in, in, in secondary and primary prevention in diabetic patients. Uh, but important to realize it's not just a drug for diabetes. It works well both in those with or without diabetes. And uh, looking at ApoB here, I just picked a few interesting biomarkers, uh, triglycerides. Really, any way you look at those different biomarkers, significant benefits. And here's the key secondary endpoint in the U.S. Again, a remarkable consistency of benefit across the same pre-specified subgroups that I just shared with you. This includes secondary and primary prevention. Again, for CV death, MI stroke, seems like a consistent finding of benefit in each. And, and speaking a little bit more about uh, secondary and primary prevention, I showed you the primary endpoint, the secondary endpoint, but now I'm showing in the USA subgroup from Reduce It all-cause mortalities. I just showed in the overall USA subgroup significant. But now I'm breaking it down by CV risk category, and, and these data aren't published yet, uh, and uh, I, I just showed uh, for the first time earlier today. So in the secondary prevention, primary prevention, you see the hazard ratios for mortality, 0 0.71, 0 0.69, uh, virtually identical. So uh, a similar degree of mortality reduction in each of these subgroups. And again, these are subgroups of subgroups, so one shouldn't really be expecting uh, statistical significance per se, but it does seem pretty consistent. Now what is different is where and when the curve separates. So earlier separation here, uh, in secondary prevention and later separation in primary prevention. And that's not dissimilar from what was seen, say, in statin trials, where the benefits, especially if one's talking about mortality, kick in a bit later. And the lower risk the population, uh, the longer it takes to manifest a benefit. And, and I think if we did do a, a trial uh, even in lower risk primary prevention, icosapendethyl would work, uh, but it would take several years. It'd have to be a very long-term study to see that. But certainly within the type of primary prevention patients we did actually enroll in the trial, uh, it seems like the benefits are really quite consistent in both of those groups. 
That is timed to first event. Now, this is the total event analysis in the U.S., and it, it, it's really a similar story where first events in green are significantly reduced, as I just said, by 31%, but then second events, third events, and even fourth or more events all significantly reduced, such that there's a 36% reduction in total events. And again, large in absolute terms, going from 770 to 500, so about 268 less events in this population of about 3,000 patients. So that's a pretty large uh, impact in terms of, of absolute benefits. What about the safety side? Overall, the tolerability and safety in this subgroup was the same as in the full study population. So really no surprises are not different. And again, if you look at a very sensitive definition of adverse events, 87, 86%, no significant difference. Or if you look at a very specific uh, type of uh, serious adverse event leading to death, 2.3% with icosapentethyl, 3.3 with placebo, again, not significant. So the drug once more is seen even in U.S. patients to be tolerated as well and as safe as a placebo. Uh, we did find a significant increase in minor bleeding in the U.S. as we did in the overall trial. And with respect to AFib and hospitalization, similarly to the overall trial, uh, we did find a significant increase, but not any significant increases in bad bleeding. And with respect to AFib or uh, flutter, uh, similarly, that was uh, usually a recurrence more so than de novo. So what does this mean from a public health or population level? Well, in the U.S., for every 1,000 patients that we were to treat with icosapentethyl four grams a day for five years, really large number of important ischemic events prevented, again, without any double counting of events such that you know, 200 uh, primary composite events would have been prevented. And in the U.S., this also includes then that there would have been uh, 34 less mortality. So a pretty uh, large treatment effect, uh, lots of uh, ramifications in terms of the public health impact. So to conclude then, uh, a few things that I want to leave you with uh, about this USA subgroup compared with placebo in the U.S. patients. Icosapentethyl, four grams a day resulted in statistically significant 31% reductions in the primary and key secondary endpoints. 28 to 47 percent reductions in all pre-specified hierarchical testing endpoints, a 36 percent reduction in total events, which includes a 37 percent reduction in second events, a 37 percent reduction in third events, and a 44 percent reduction in fourth or more events, again, all statistically significant, and finally, a 30 percent relative risk reduction and 2.6 percent absolute risk reduction in all-cause mortality in the U.S. patients randomized to icosapentethyl. I'd really like to thank the investigators of Reduce It and Reduce It USA, the study coordinators, and in particular the 3,146 patients from the U.S. who participated in Reduce It. And before concluding, just a couple of other things. If you want details about this U.S. analysis, it's already been published online in circulation where you can find everything that I mentioned other than the mortality for primary and secondary prevention. A couple of other things I'll mention before concluding. Uh, I didn't discuss cost um, uh, in the context of uh, the overall trial. Uh, I did mention ICER, but uh, that was done with trial-level data, 
what was presented as a late breaker yesterday by Dr. Bill Weintraub was the overall cost effectiveness analysis. He's also working on a USA specific one. And the drug was found to be highly cost effective, a so-called dominant strategy. That's one of the rare cases where a drug is both improving outcomes and decreasing cost. And that's in part because, yes, it reduced important things like MI and stroke and cardiovascular death, but also reduced things such as hospitalization for unstable angina and procedures like cabbage and PCI, which generate a lot of healthcare costs, especially in the U.S. healthcare system. And the final point I'll just make before concluding was alluded to earlier just a few days ago on Thursday, November 14th. Uh, the FDA convened an advisory committee of uh, independent experts uh, who voted 16 to 0 that they thought the strength of data was such uh, that the label for icosapentethyl should be expanded to include cardiovascular risk reduction. Now, exactly what's in the label is always a matter of uh, discussions with the FDA, but still uh, yet another independent endorsement of the strength of the data. Thank you very much for your attention. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Reduce at USA. And uh, um, Deepak, maybe if I could start off with a couple questions before we adjourn. There were some questions uh, about the placebo group and the importance of CRP. Where uh, We have uh, Dr. Peter Libby, one of the world's authorities in the CRP, and, and one person mentioned that the slide you showed that HSCRP in the placebo group went from 2.1 to 2.8, again, getting back to the mineral oil question, and they were wondering whether there were other inflammatory markers that may have... Uh, looked like they uh, got worse also in the placebo group. So uh, one of the things uh, that the... Is this on? Okay, good. Yeah, one of the things that the FDA also uh, pined on, and it was just a pine, they did their own independent extensive analysis. So they looked at changes in LDL, looked at changes in CRP, and thought, you know, all together those sorts of relatively small changes uh, could account for at most about 3.3% of the observed benefits. So they... They didn't think it was a big deal. In terms of my own assessment, you know, CRP, um, LDL, these things can vary quite a bit. Uh, LDL going upward in the placebo arm here. Uh, we saw the same thing in the Odyssey trial, as a matter of fact. In the placebo arm, there was a small upward drift, and that's just because, you know, with long-term studies, uh, you know, patients' uh, risk factors, even under the best of circumstances, sometimes get a little bit out of whack. You know, as far as CRP, um, when we were at the FDA, uh, Dr. Paul Ritger was with us and also opining at, uh, to the FDA in the panel about his thoughts. And, you know, what's been proven... Uh, in the Cantos trial is that one specific drug, canakinumab, was very effective at uh, lowering events in CRP, but nobody's actually shown that CRP going up, especially just over time, is, is necessarily associated with cardiovascular risk. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily put uh, much thought or worry, but I, I'd be interested to hear what Dr. Libby has to say. I think we should go on to the questions oh, okay. floor. Because time, time is short. We have great questions. This is a very aware audience. Actually, Roger, let me ask you, this is a question that comes up, and you're an expert in this. Uh, someone who has an imaging test that shows uh, subclinical atherosclerosis, um, be it calcium, be it, uh, you know, intermedia, uh, CTA, um, are they primary or secondary prevention? This comes up in the question of uh, prophylactic aspirin. Many times uh, people might uh, take the, the tack that we're, we're somewhere in between primary and secondary prevention. A number of years ago, one of our colleagues talked about primary and a half prevention. 
I think we're getting uh, closer to the idea that when you have a high degree of subclinical atherosclerosis, we might as well treat more aggressively. And I think uh, Dr. Eccles has been a, a big proponent of that. Um, Gabrielle, maybe I could ask you a little bit about the question that came up about pill burden and uh, how will you approach things uh, um, in uh, France and others when we have this great study that has uh, four uh, uh, capsules a day that was used in the clinical trial and people are trying to say, well, if I'm going to do this doctor, are there any other medications that I might do without? How would you approach it from the European point of view? Yeah, so it is a, a real question, polypharmacy for preventive uh, uh, interventions, particularly because we don't get the benefit of seeing symptomatic benefit with preventive interventions. I mean, when you give uh, painkillers to patients with arthritis, they are adherent because they see the immediate benefits, and if they stop therapy, they can see the pain coming back. So you really have to have a conversation with the patients justifying each and every one of your interventions when you're discussing preventive therapies. That being said, um, I adjudicate events in critical event committees for trials for patients that come around from around the globe. And I'm always impressed, particularly in the United States, when I look at the files, at the number of medications that are over-the-counter that patients take in addition to what is prescribed. So not only do they have their diabetes medications, their blood pressure-lowering medications, their statins, their antipathy therapy, but on top of it, they'll take one, sometimes two, sometimes three over-the-counter supplements. For, the, for which the data on efficacy can be, at the very least, limited. The cost is real, and sometimes side effects are real. So I think that we probably need to be more stringent in, in cleaning the prescription from all of this uh, junk and focusing on, on drugs that have proven efficacy. And, and I think that we've seen now that we have drugs that are remarkably effective, and I'm struck at how effective we can be in addition to all the effective interventions we already have, I think it's incredible that cardiology keeps on finding effective therapies in addition to all the progress we've made in the past 20 years. Yeah, so uh, Preston, we didn't uh, get 100% of people saying you should have pharmaceutical grade F, uh, EPA or omega-3 fatty acids. So what are the differences between what you buy in the nutrition store down the street and the highly purified version, which is prescription only. So we did a, a systematic study of that question. We looked at the most popular um, dietary supplements here in the United States, and we evaluated the content. And we found that in addition to omega-3 fatty acids, uh, there were up to two-thirds of the product was actually other oils, including a third of the product of the capsule being saturated fat. So uh, certainly not something you would advocate for a patient with cardiovascular disease. And then for the omega-3 fatty acid, we found that a substantial percentage was oxidized or damaged, which renders it at, at, at best uh, useless. At worst, it can be harmful when you consume large amounts of oxidized fish oil. So we believe that they should certainly not be uh, recommended for patients at risk for cardiovascular disease and, of course, the prescription product goes through an elaborate process of isolation, purification, and removal of any contaminants. So a dramatic difference in the quality and, therefore, the outcomes. Uh, Preston, um, there are four capsules a day to comply with the regimen that was used and reduce it. If you're using krill oil, how many tablets a day? Krill oil from your sure. nutrition store? So uh, krill oil is especially egregious uh, because the, like, 
omega red is about 180 milligrams or just under 200 milligrams of omega-3. That's EPA and DHA. So you'd, of course, be taking at least 20 to get anywhere near uh, the product. That's about a bottle every day. And then for a one-gram traditional fish oil capsule, about a third of the product uh, among the most popular ones are omega-3. So you'd be taking at least a dozen if you believe what's on the label. So it's uh, quite a arduous task to try to get an adequate level using these products. I'm Peter Libby from Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard Medical School. I'm uh, Roger Blumenthal, uh, professor of cardiology from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland. Hello, I'm Deepak Bhatt from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Robert Eckel. I'm a professor emeritus from the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and I'm also an endocrinologist. Preston Mason from Boston and Brigham and Women's Hospital, as well as Elucida Research. Hello, I'm Gabriel Stegg. I'm a cardiologist at Hôpital Bichat in Paris and a professor at Université de Paris in Paris, France. So, uh, Gabrielle, maybe I could start off and just get your um, uh, analysis of the main differences between the ESC guidelines about dyslipidemia management and the U.S. guidelines. How do you see the main differences? Well, first of all, I think they're remarkably consistent, so the differences are minute. Uh, I think the ESC, ES, EAS uh, committee uh, maybe uh, was a little more bold than our U.S. counterparts by uh, going forward and already recommending a clearly lower target for LDL cholesterol for the very high-risk patients, uh, as low as 55 milligrams per deciliter LDL cholesterol, and therefore a quite strong recommendation for adding to statins, azetimibe, and PCSK9 inhibitors to reach that target in patients. Uh, clearly, the, uh, the costs and the uh, economics are quite different in Europe from what they are in the US for various reasons, payers, uh, the healthcare system, the price of, of drugs. Uh, but I think that would be the, the main difference. With respect to non-LDL cholesterol targets, it's remarkable that both the ADA, uh, the AHA advisory committee, and now the ES, ESCAS guidelines have consistently uh, uh, taken into account the very recent reduced trial uh, results to recommend targeting triglycerides in patients who have elevated triglycerides on top of statins. So Preston, we're really lucky because we have a second major trial of omega-3 fatty acids, which is in the pipeline, we'll hear about uh, in uh, a year or so. Um, can you highlight for us the differences in the agents that are being used in reduce it which we've been talking about today, and what we anticipate to hear from, from strength, uh, you know, the form of esterification and the mixture of the omega-3 fatty acids. Could you review that for us? Sure. So in both cases, they're using a four gram per day approach to treating um, patients with elevated triglycerides and high cardiovascular risk. Um, but in terms of the composition, Epinova is about 850 milligrams per capsule of total omega-3 fatty acid, of which about 50 to 60 percent is EPA and about 25 percent is DHA. And then there are other uh, components as well. In the reduced trial uh, using Vasipa, it was only EPA, highly purified EPA, making up essentially the entire capsule. And so one is a you know, mix EPA DHA product in case of strength trial, and the reduce it used an EPA only product uh, in their uh, trial 
favoring the, that product because it doesn't raise LDL while lowering triglycerides. And does it make any difference whether the fatty acids are esterified or not? Like that, a cosepent ethyl means that it's esterified. Correct. So in the case of reduce it, it is like cosepent ethyl. Um, there is the conversion in the small intestine to the active free fatty acid. In the case of the strength trial, they are using the free fatty acid. So there's uh, presumably better absorption compared to that. It doesn't have to be taken with food and activating lipases as in the case of SIPA. Uh, Certainly, I, I think uh, one comment I, I might have, uh, Deepak, is that we'll, we'll have the evaporate study being presented tomorrow, and that um, will be helpful, hopefully, at looking at mechanisms. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Mason talked about was perhaps uh, uh, strengthening the fibers cap and maybe slowing the progression of, uh, of uh, atherosclerosis through a decrease in plaque volume. Could you perhaps comment a little bit on uh, what we should expect to see from evaporate in terms of mechanistic explanations? Sure. I mean, it's a study looking at CT on geography and plaque progression. Interim results are being presented at the American Heart Association. Uh, so it's nine-month results, but it's meant to be an 18-month study. But this was a pre-specified interim look. Uh, so I think that will be insightful. But I'll remind the audience of a trial, probably they haven't heard of it, called CHERRY, it was done in Japan, which was an intravascular ultrasound, so not CT angiography as with evaporate, but invasive intravascular ultrasound. And there it was 1.8 grams of EPA that was being used, so a lower dose, uh, but a similar active ingredient. And in Japanese patients on a background of patavastatin, and there, uh, there was a significant difference in plaque progression in the EPA arm versus the no EPA arm. It, it didn't have an actual uh, placebo control. It was an open-label trial, but still a rather large difference there. So we already have some evidence of um, how EPA can affect, in a beneficial way, plaque progression. So uh, I think Evaporate will hopefully build upon that knowledge. Do you know the LDL cholesterol levels in that population? Uh, in, in the uh, CHERRY study? I don't recall that. Uh, in the corresponding JELUS trial, which was the outcome trial, the LDL levels were a little on the high side. Um, but uh, here, you know, it was a, uh, you know, moderate intensity statin that was used, uh, and that was symmetric in both the treatment arms. And Deepak, uh, in the USA analysis of REDUCE-IT, could you go over the uh, cardiovascular and total mortality uh, data and contrast it with what was seen in the whole study? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. In the U.S. patients, first of all, we analyzed it because it's pre-specified, and what we found was an amplification, essentially, of benefit across all the ischemic endpoints, including significant reductions in CV mortality in the U.S., as we saw in the overall trial. But now, where there was a trend for all-cause mortality in the overall trial, uh, here we actually see a statistically significant 30% relative risk reduction and works out to 2.6% absolute risk risk reduction in all-cause mortality in the U.S. subgroup. But I don't think it's because of some geographic factor that is U.S. versus non-U.S. The non-U.S. patients also had significant reductions in the primary and secondary composite out outcomes. But I think it's just that there were a bunch more risk factors in the people in the U.S., especially a lot more obesity. Also, they had lower baseline EPA levels in the U.S., so I think it's the fact there was just more risk, a higher risk population, higher event rates in the placebo arm that led to greater benefits. So I think the key is, you know, you'll see benefits, including in hard endpoints such as mortality, 
moving into higher-risk populations, whereas in lower-risk populations, I think those benefits would also occur, but would require a much longer time horizon to see it, sort of akin to what we've observed in the Stanton world in terms of when the benefits kick in. You know, what's interesting is how fast things are moving. If we had had this meeting, this seminar, just a few years ago, we wouldn't have had proof that uh, glucose-lowering agents can improve cardiovascular outcomes, and we wouldn't have proof. As a matter of fact, very recent meta-analyses cast doubt on the efficacy of omega-3 fatty acids right. in uh, reducing cardiovascular events. How far we've come, uh, we can take satisfaction for a millisecond and then think how far we have to go. Let me thank all the panelists for their contributions tonight. This activity has been provided by Medtelligence. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation by visiting reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.